When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. It doesn't escape anybody's attention that we are in a presidential election year. Our Media is going to be filled with talk of this upcoming election. We're going to see just how interesting and messy, maybe, yes, very messy, (laughs) and hopefully not too unusual, but we'll, we'll just have to see how it goes. We are going to have a presidential election year, possibly unlike any other. As I did in the last presidential election year, 2020, I wanted to do a special series on presidential elections of the past. I wanted to help to provide some historical context to what we're experiencing in the present day, 2024, as of this recording. And so I thought through, how do I want to approach this? Last time I did more narrative series. But in this case, I wanted to invite on fellow podcasters and friends to be able to talk through some of the more monumental presidential elections in past times. And so I am very thankful to be joined by my dear friend, Zach Tobacco of Drinks with Great Minds in History. Zach, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Happy to be here, Jerry. I mean, I found out before we were recording that this is the inaugural episode. If it releases that way, hopefully it's it's hopefully it's enjoyable. Uh, But we'll have some fun talking about elections. It's interesting that you said um, I don't know if you call them monumental or pivotal or whatever it was, but the word you said definitely hit that tone of the important elections that kind of shape us. And interestingly, I was thinking about it. The first election we're going to cover today really isn't that monumental. Uh, It's more like a hiccup. And the second one is one of the most pivotal uh, in in American history. So it's interesting that they have this connection. And thank you for appeasing me. And when I said, why don't we cover both of these elections? And obviously, listeners will find out why. But hi, thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me on. Really excited to be here. No worries. And like you said, you know, when you when we start talking about this and start talk about doing both of these elections, covering them both in tandem, it made sense. It really, I mean, these were both, in their own respects, you know, they they are landmarks of presidential election history. But before we get started, so first of all, in true DGMH mode, I am enjoying a nice brew from my home state of North Carolina. Okay. It is a Foothills Hopium IPA. Ooh. And so, Zach, what are you drinking? Uh, yeah, so on DGMH, Drinks with Great Minds in History, we always have a drink typically tied 
uh, to the great mind that we're covering. For example, I drank a Greek anise uh, uh, when I did Cleopatra, and that was painful because uh, I don't <laughs> like those. Uh, but, and I, I think that you'll know why right away, I had to grab, not my favorite whiskey on my shelf at all by any means, but I had to grab a bottle of uh, Kentucky bourbon uh, because, well, there's a reason. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a big reason why Kentucky's going to play a uh, uh, indirect role in this story and you know, you know plus it's the new year gotta gotta watch those carbs a little bit so i figured try i try to drink beer only one or two <laughs> nights a week uh at the house or anything like that so i'm on the whiskey but uh yeah thanks for uh having a drink with me i i you know i know that's not a staple of your show but i appreciate you embracing the guest there on this this adventure um should i introduce the podcast Absolutely. Well, first of all, cheers. Cheers. Yes. Cheers. <laughs> Freaking mine out of a little tankard, too. Uh, so I love it. <laughs> keeps it cold. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Well, yes, Zach, please feel free to tell our audience about your podcast, uh, which I will go ahead and say is on my regular rotation. So I highly recommend it to anybody. It, I, I just love that you are able to cover so many different figures from history, but at the same time, in your seasons, you find a way to tie them together. So Zach, please share with our audience about your podcast. Yeah, I, I do try to tie them together, or sometimes by the fifth or sixth one in, they would just tie together in weird ways. You start to realize <laughs> things. Uh, you know, you don't think you're going to be comparing Catherine de Medici to William or Winston Churchill, but in many ways you can. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously the show we compared Stalin and, and Churchill when we did that, but I very easily could could have, it's a debate. The background, as Jerry just kind of insinuated when we discussed this stuff, is you never know what's in the background, and it's constant discussions with my guest hosts that come on sitting here trying to figure out um, what's the best matchup for, for what the thing we do. So my show is Drinks with Great Minds in History. It's been going for a few years now. And, um, you know, I, I cover various great minds. I do a whole episode on their history by myself. And then I bring on a guest to talk about the psychology behind some of the elements of their story. And then I come back and I do like a little side bonus episode on like a story that I just wanted to dive more into that I couldn't. I call it the chaser. And then uh, I bring in a few other guests on and we kind of hash out the lives and legacies and events and moments as well as who would win in a fight, uh, you know, every time uh, uh, of uh, two of the great minds that I've covered. So, for example, when we did Cleopatra, gosh, now I can't remember who who she squared off against off the top of my head all of a sudden. But, uh, you know, we'll compare someone George Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson. We did, you know, so people get matched up. Sometimes they're unique and sometimes we go in thinking this is a weird choice and you start realizing, wow. These people connect and mash up more than do you ever thought. But yeah, I cover about four great minds a season. This season's theme was what if history. We dove into some what if stories like Cleopatra's and those turning point moments. And I took a brief anti-historian moment to explore the potential instead of the reality. And then, of course, uh, I had a side theme, which is going to be very important to my season finale coming up this week, uh, which was poisonous tales. And I didn't really mean to. Uh, I just kind of picked a topic to start the season. I was like, wow, there's a lot of poison. 
in Cleopatra's story alone. But still, this is the presidency's podcast. Luckily, not as much poisoning in um, American presidency's history. Not as much. Uh, but Zachary Taylor <laughs> uh, come to, uh, to mind. But still, yes. Um, so, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting me introduce the show, Drinks with Great Minds in History. Definitely, I'll share the social and stuff at the end or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk elections. One of my favorite topics in the classroom. That's the thing about my podcast. We're all teachers. Uh, everybody that's on the podcast almost always is a teacher unless there's a special guest. So that's kind of that's how we roll. We teach. Well, and, and Zach, you joined us for the Seat at the Table series on Robert Smith, who was a fascinating figure in presidential history and, and definitely getting to that, that poison theme. You know, <laughs> there was a lot of political, metaphorical poison Talk going on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. With yes. Robert Smith's story and in our discussion this evening because we are going to be discussing the two corrupt bargain elections so mm -hmm. we're going to be discussing the elections of 1824 and 1876 and mm -hmm. again zach you are the perfect guest for this the fact that you bring on in your podcast these disparate figures who folks may not have paired up before, but who have some common thread, common theme to their story. And so I, you know, whenever you suggested this, it was like, okay, this is perfect DGMH content here. So, <laughs> so glad to have you here for this. And that's the thing, like you look at these elections initially, and there are so many differences, you know, mm -hmm. 1824, You've got a time before worlds. Yeah, I mean, completely different worlds. We have pre-Civil War and post-Civil War. We have 1824 when there weren't really those established political parties. Establishing political parties. Yeah, I agree exactly. with you. Yes, the, the deep-rooted establishment isn't there. Not that the Republican Party is particularly old by 1876 by any means. But yeah, I get what you're saying, 100%. Exactly. And, and by 1876, you have these more established political parties. And to some extent, that's part of the story is the establishment working in these elections. But just starting us off just with some basic facts. So 1824, we have a smaller country. We only need 131 electoral votes to win out of 261 total. But in this election, we have four primary candidates. We have Andrew Jackson of Tennessee. We have John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts. We have William H. Crawford of Georgia. And we have Henry Clay of, and this is where the drink of choice comes into play, Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. I had to for, for Henry Clay. He's one of my favorite. He's just such a fun person to teach. And when you teach the second survey of American history, which I have for eight years, both at the college and high school levels, you're forced to go back and cover Henry Clay as you creep into the Civil War. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait, the guy who has all the quotes, the guy who's always doing all this stuff, he just dies and he goes away. And luckily, by the turn of the century, after all the chaos of Reconstruction and ending and westward expansion, we get William Jennings Bryan, who is the answer to all the questions and never goes away. Uh, so who will come up, I'm sure, in several of your election chats. I mean, you could do a whole episode on just the William Jennings Bryan election flops, which ties to Henry Clay again. But yeah, I love that you said that, though. The size of the country is so different. It's creeping past 
we have a couple states past the Mississippi River, but only what two in 1824 in Michigan and Wisconsin are are still part of Michigan territory. You, you know, so it's it's a totally different America. Uh, it's only about it's less than half. I mean, I'm in Florida right now, and Florida is not even a state uh, in this period. So exactly, and and that's the thing. Like this was an election that what we think of as America is still very much forming. But we also start to have some sectional tensions. We start to have some things that are going on. And we're still, the United States is still trying to figure out what presidential elections look like. It is much different than what we think of nowadays. So six states in this, and there are 24 states total voting. Six states had no popular vote. No. And... All four candidates were only on the ballot. All four of them were only on the ballot in six states. Interesting. And that's kind of connecting to today as to whether or not states will have certain persons, not to get political, on their ballot. Interesting uh, connection there. Exactly. And, and that's the thing. It really, even now, we don't really think of this as much, but it really can be a state-by-state basis. It is still the states who have more control over what determines the presidential election. And isn't this the last time that the land ownership clause was part of the voting requirements? So the next one begins the Jacksonian democracy. So I think right around, we're in the flopping period, which means that even still, you know, not everybody's going to vote. You know, so the popular vote's going to be way, way lower then it's going to be in 1828. So 1824 is a very big, it's a, it's a growing year. Uh, but anytime you have four candidates running for president, it's going to be a catastrophe, a hot mess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I would have used some choice words on my podcast to describe that, but I will just keep it clean for, for Jerry's show and then say that it would be a hot mess. Uh, and you can insert whatever expletives you'd like. Um, <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, so you were saying. And, and that's what it was. You know, it, it really comes down to, so, and this is one thing that we've learned in more modern times is that it really is about those electoral votes. You have to win 131, which was 50% plus one to win. Mm-hmm. And the top vote getter was Andrew Jackson, but he only earned 99 electoral votes. He earned 41.4% of the popular vote, but again, not a majority and not a majority of the electoral votes. And that was the problem. Right. The next highest vote getter was JQA at 84 electoral votes, 30.9% of the popular vote. Crawford came in third at 41 electoral votes and 11.2% of the popular vote. And then Henry Clay was last, 37 electoral and 13% of the popular vote. And I think it's important to note that this is the first election where we really see a breaking away from the old guard. Monroe was kind of the last of the old guard. Uh, these are the sons of the old guard, of the revolutionary heroes, of the soldiers. These are the people born of America, in a way, or very close to it, grew up, come of age in America. Those war hawks that emerged in the Madison years, they are different than the founding fathers. And this is really the first election where there's no founding fathers present in the drama, albeit Jefferson and Adams and others still very much alive. Uh, you know, I know one of uh, Jefferson's letters to Adams towards the end of their uh, respective lives is how proud you must be to have a, a president 
a son as a president, and I mean spoilers, but if you didn't know and you're listening to this podcast that John Quincy Adams was the president of the United States, I mean, <laughs> Adams only get Adamses only get one term. But yeah, I mean, what a cool reality that there's four people running for president when the country's the size that it is. And given the Burr mess, you have to know where we're heading, right? That we're, you know, this is going to be, like you said, it's majority rules, not plurality. So even though Jackson, like you said, with the statistics, has the majority popular and the most, I mean, he does have the majority, but he has the most popular, most electoral, he still technically doesn't win. Yeah. And it's like, okay, wait, it's 1824. We've been a country for a couple, few decades now. And this is the second time we have to send this crap to the house uh, of representatives, which is where things start getting corrupt. But uh, I'll let you pick up from there. Exactly. Well, and Zach, just like you said, uh, you know, all these four figures in their own way, the War of 1812 was really the pivotal point for all of them. And Andrew Jackson was the military hero of the Battle of New Orleans. John Quincy Adams helped to negotiate, and, and Henry Clay, too, helped to negotiate the Treaty of Ghent. Henry Clay had become the Speaker of the House, was a very powerful political figure in the run-up to and then during and after the War of 1812. Crawford came on to the Madison presidency, mm -hmm. came on to the Madison cabinet. We're going to be talking about him in the seat at the table before mm -hmm. too long. He ended up staying on with the Monroe presidency. Mm -hmm. These were four figures who were really made by the War of 1812. This was that new generation yeah. coming up, but they were also so much in the legacy that they were left. This idea from the founding generation that we shouldn't have political parties. And so mm -hmm. by this point, the Federalists had faded away, had, had been diminished to near nothingness. And mm -hmm. so you have all these four individuals who are ostensibly in the same party, but they're not. They are figures yeah. in their own right. And you know, it's interesting, the party period really emerges in the next election because of Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay. And William H. Crawford gets next to no attention in this election because he really doesn't matter. But he's the second most qualified person running for president. I mean, he's got the stepping stones like a Monroe, Secretary of War, Minister of France, President Pro Tempore, Treasury Secretary under two presidents already. He'll be three, obviously. But I, I, I mean, he is somebody, the only person more qualified is John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams is still following the old rules. Serve as a foreign minister. Have connections to a founding father or two. Serve as Secretary of the State. Do big things as Secretary of the State that somebody else gets the credit for, and then you get to be president next. John Quincy Adams is just following the rules, and he's incredibly qualified, pretty skilled too. Certainly a foreign policy. I would say he's got the, the smarts for foreign policy. So, I mean, we've got a lot of qualified candidates and then there's andrew jackson who's solely running on what was he he was like a representative and then he was a governor military governor of florida for a hot second where he was ruthless and then then he won the the battle of new orleans which shouldn't have happened in the first place in the war of 1812 so he's got the military hero piece right and then who's the other one? Oh, henry clay he'll matter uh <laughs> he's just henry clay uh, so this is his first go at it, though, I think, right? 
It is. Yes. First go. Ooh, good for him. Big day. Yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, you, you have these four figures and really Crawford is seen as more of the establishment candidate. Although, like you said, Zach, JQA, he really, he followed the formula. Mm-hmm. He followed the, you know, I'm going to be a diplomat. I'm going to be this loyal cabinet member, secretary of state, that second in command. Crawford was a little more of the outsider, but it was also playing into kind of that Monroe because Monroe had that rivalry with James Madison. Monroe was seen as kind of the outsider candidate until he came into the inside and, and Crawford tried to play into some of that because they kind of saw this was things were starting to change. Right. And you see that with, Jackson, the fact that Jackson was so popular, it, mm-hmm. it was that folks were looking for a, a change. And, and we hear this in politics. Right. It's and really, elections. is it really where we, uh, is, is it fair to say this is where we see populism first pop up in an election uh, in 1824 and 1828? It, it's this, the people's candidate. And, um, and then you've got this, this rogue candidate like Henry Clay, who honestly will never really ascend to the political heights. And he's a perfect example of someone that you, you'll you cover on the seat at the table a thousand times. But he really, not really, because he technically only served one time in a cabinet position, but he's an example of someone who just wielded power without ever holding the top notch. He just held, he, he was a strong figure wherever he was, Senator, House of Representatives. And I mean, I, you know, he, my favorite Clay quote, and we're really not getting the election. I guess we should get back to the My favorite Clay quote, quote is when he says later in his life, I'd rather be right than be president. I call that the sore loser quote. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> Henry Clay will run and lose three yeah. times. He's a sore, sore loser. Oh, I'd rather be right than be president. Well, you never got to be president. How do you know? Uh, but anyway, so the election, what do you want to, where do you want to go with the election? I mean, uh, do you want to look at the fallout so we can jump to the next one? Or do you want to, Kind of do what details do you want to go into? I'll follow your lead here. Well, and first of all, one of the things I want to note is that even though the presidential election was disputed and ended up going into the House, the vice presidential election was pretty solid. John C. Calhoun, who we can describe as the fifth wheel of this, because at one point he was in the presidential election pack. And when he saw that his candidacy wasn't really going anywhere, he was like, you know what? I'm still young enough. I will stand aside. I will seek the vice presidency. And he won it decisively with 182 electoral votes. And some of the electors for all of the four presidential candidates chose Calhoun to cast their vote for VP. Mm-hmm. All of Jackson's electors unanimously, mm-hmm. they voted for Calhoun and a majority of Adams's chose Calhoun. But like you said, Zach, this election is not one that's going to be decided with the Electoral College. It's one that's going to be thrown into the House. It was an interesting piece about Calhoun, too. He's not broken apart yet. He's very much still part of the political game. Most people who know Calhoun probably know him as this figure of the South. There's Clay being in the middle, Webster in the north, Calhoun in the south. That hasn't happened yet. That will happen soon, within the next decade. But right now, Calhoun is just like a clay, a young war hawk candidate, and he's going to show up again. But yes, you're right. We, 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 
history people, you know, we, we can talk, <laughs> we can go on every tangent or beaver hole as we call it on DGMH. But yeah, so the election, tell what do you take it? Yeah. And, and just like with Adams and Crawford, Calhoun was a member of the Monroe cabinet. He was seen as this insider. He was seen as somebody who was kind of a, a nationalist at this point. And so he really, he wasn't in allegiance with one candidate or the other. And that's why he was seen as being this candidate who would be a good vice president for anybody. But we still have to decide who is going to be the president. And so it gets thrown into the House. And this is only the second time and only the second time thus far in U.S. history where the House has decided the election. The other time was the election of 1800. They did so good the last time, Jerry. They really nailed it. <laughs> y- you know, they kept the drama going. Everybody was hooked on the edge of their seats. 36 tie-breaking votes. They really know how to fix it. <laughs> I think at this moment, it's important to note who the Speaker of the House is. Uh because that's the thing in terms of the Constitution and what the rules were, the three top vote getters who were Adams, Jackson, and Crawford, they went to the House. Henry Clay at this point was out. But <laughs> but he was still Speaker um, of the House and still somebody who enjoyed a good deal of political clout in the house. He's a speaker of the house. I mean, he's there. He is. The, I mean, he's like, let's you, guess what guys I'm still in it. So don't <laughs> <Exactly>. forget me. <laughs> don't forget me. And so you see all these political machinations and we're going to talk about this more in detail with the seat of the table episodes for Crawford Adams. We've got so much coming up with that, but there are political machinations at every point. People supporters of all these three candidates were talking to one another. We're talking to the clay folks. We're mm-hmm. trying to figure out, okay, well, what do we do here? And you also have the, other X factor, which was that Crawford had suffered what is believed to be a stroke prior to the election. And even leading up to the election, there were concerns about can this guy physically be president or is he just going to be kind of this puppet? Or can we just leave him in secretary of treasury for a third press? Exactly. <laughs> but that's, I, yeah, I mean, I guess, for me, the, the teachable moment, the teaching moment here is, you know, we're not going to cover this today, but Jackson is famously known for the spoils system, right? Mm-hmm. At you scratch my back, I scratch yours. So the victor go the spoils, my friends are going to get it. You know, he had his kitchen cabinet and everything. And he gets a lot of criticism for that, ironically, by the very people who are going to use that same system in about 30 seconds, you know, because <laughs> this is all, okay, wait, I can get you the votes you need, but. What am I going to get out of it? And that's where we get our first corrupt bargain, isn't it, Jerry? Because that's where this is going. So Clay, by the nature of his political ideology, is more aligned with Adams than Jackson. And Adams was a modernizer, an industrialist. He believed in the American system. I agree with you. But yes, to put that in perspective, quick history textbook version Henry Clay's pushing through modernization in the early ages of industrialism, canals and stuff like that. And Quincy Adams will do that. 
yeah. doesn't get a lot of credit for it, but he will do that in his presidency. I think more canals were built during his presidency than any other president before him. More, there was more modernization than any other president before him. And so he certainly is, I agree with, I, I'm just saying I 100% agree with what you just said. Yes, exactly. he's certainly more in line. He, yeah. Well, and, and you see, and, and even though this wasn't known at the time, you see in private correspondence, people like Jefferson, people like Madison were concerned about Jackson and his capabilities of actually being president. He was this political outsider. He was somebody who was outside of the establishment. And so you see the insiders kind of, okay, well, this is the situation here. Who's going to be the best president? And so John Quincy Adams ends up winning when the House balloting happens, and it's by state delegation. So Adams won with 13 votes, which was 54.17% of the state ballots in the House on the first ballot. Didn't go to 36 like in- Not 36, not even two. Not even two. Jackson got seven. Crawford got four. And I think it's important to circle back real quick and say, remember, Jackson got the most electoral votes in the initial election. The, the I mean- he had over he was the only one with over 40% of the popular vote he was in essence the choice yeah but politicking kicked in and i think here's where we, if it's okay with you jerry can i jump to the corrupt aspect of the bargain absolutely so here's where the you scratch my back and, and i mean never really paid attention to crawford but crawford basically kept his job you get to continue being secretary of treasury good try just sit there and be quiet and then we get speaker of the house henry clay Striking the deep, I will get you the votes that you need so that I can get the golden position for when I want to run for president. Secretary of State, really the second most powerful position in the United States government. Quite arguably, at times, probably the true decision maker. He, he gets it. That's It's the stepping stone of the presidency. It is a valued, coveted position. It, it, look at Obama, Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton got Secretary of State in return for support. It's still happening to this day, but this is the first time where it's like out in the open. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason it's out in the open is because of Jackson. Jackson's like, guys, do you not see what he's doing here? And Andrew Jackson's supporters who will become the the Democratic jackasses, and I use jackass not as a swear, but because that becomes the logo, call me a jackass, then that's going to be my political symbol, you know? And they, they, they become this anti- what have you corrupt people done? Let's drain this swamp, which in return leads to the creation of Henry Clay's Whig Party, uh, basically. And I shouldn't call it Henry Clay's Whig Party, but it is Henry Clay's Whig Party, the anti-Jackson party. And Quincy Adams kind of gets lost in the the grander scheme of things. But what do you think about the corrupt bargain? I guess, what do you want to say? It's your show here. so Absolutely. Well, and, and that's the thing. It, you know, at face value, it doesn't look good. It really doesn't. Today, we wouldn't even bat an eyelash. <laughs> and and that's the thing, like Jackson and his supporters immediately after the election, when it was announced that Clay mm-hmm. was going to be Secretary of State, the election of 1828 began. Already, it's already they been. started for four years, every opportunity they had to pound in corrupt bargain, corrupt bargain, mm-hmm. corrupt bargain. And we see in 1828 the result of that. Jackson defeats Adams in that reelection. But part of that was 
you have political parties coalescing, you have Jackson and his supporters, and in particular, Martin Van Buren, who at this point in 1824 was supporting Crawford, switches allegiances to Jackson and starts to organize what became the Democratic Party, really planning the strategy to get him elected. And it's a winning strategy. It, mm-hmm. it gets Jackson to the White House. It gets beautiful rematch terms. election. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it becomes the Jacksonian era. It completely reshapes mm-hmm. the course of American history for better or worse. And, and, and Henry Clay will run against Jackson in 1832, one of the three elections that he'll lose. Uh, so, uh, yes, the Whigs, the wonderful, wonderful Whigs. Uh, yeah. Like Oz, they're a mythological creature that rarely does anything really of impact. Uh, so, <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, sorry, we're history nerding there. So, corrupt bargain number one, do you want me to take the backstory of the next corrupt bargain, or do you have anything else you wanted to add about the 1824? Absolutely. I, I think we are good with 1824. We can come back, kind of circle back around at the end mm-hmm. to kind of compare and contrast these two. Of course. But yeah, if you'd like to. Start us off with 1876. I love to teach. Yeah. Well, so here's where we get into the teacher conundrum. This is why I always brought up the corrupt bargain number one in my classroom. My fellow teachers are like, we have a test at the end of the year. We need to we need to get to this stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. My kids will pass because they know what I'm talking about, not because I taught them a vocab term. All right, I'll teach the vocab term, but I'm going to teach them why it's called the second corrupt bargain. I'm going to go back and teach the first one. And that's what we kind of did here today. And I, I kind of pleaded with jerry you know he's like whoa we can do that we can't do that we can't it was a, there was a debate there was a discord is you know like oh i think we could do that and then he kind of like the history nerd kicked in and he's like oh yeah we're doing that and it's like <laughs> the first corrupt bargain is totally different than the second corrupt bargain but the fact that it gets called the second corrupt bargain is a callback to to the first low point i think in american political scandal in a way not presidential scandal singular, but political intrigue. You know, this isn't, this is, this is something that was seen as shady politicking. And we're going to get to the new shady politic in 1876. But backstory, Civil War happens. If you don't know that, seriously, I mean, <laughs> U.S. Civil War happens. Lincoln gets assassinated. Great guy. All right. Lincoln. All right. Great guy. But he gets assassinated. We're left with stinky old Johnson. We go through reconstruction, a period of rebuilding. And Johnson gets pushed out by the radical Republicans. They choose Grant as their candidate. And please spare me the, not you, Jerry, but anybody who's listening is getting angry with me. Spare me. I've got 30 seconds to teach this to anybody who doesn't know it. And here we go. All right. They choose Grant, the soldier, the general, the victor of the Civil War to be their commander in chief president uh, during Reconstruction, during military Reconstruction. And the South becomes organized into five military districts per the Reconstru- Military Reconstruction Act, or I think it's just called the Reconstruction Act 1868 or something like that. Carved up into military districts, you will follow the rules and there will be freedom. And it works, but it's so expensive that by 1876, it's too expensive. And most states have taken the oath of allegiance and followed the rules and done everything that needed to be done to just get their freedom back. Ironically, those southern states that got their freedom back became overly democratic, Democratic Big D, Democratic Party, back in the times where that meant no freedom. All right. And, uh, you know, the party flop will happen in 1832 or, or 1932 or whatever. So we can't focus on that. But back then, you've got um, the party of Lincoln and the party of not Lincoln. 
And the party of not Lincoln is taking control of the South, except in three states, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. The last three states, ironically, just still have a military presence in them per the Reconstruction Act. And that will probably be important because come the election of 1860, or 1876, we have what? It's just two candidates. Easy this time. We're going to get through, through this quick now. It's Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Now, I'll let Jerry come in whenever he wants to. But for me, Sam, it's always important to know that Samuel Tilden is a diamond in the rough for the South, a northern Democrat from a very large and important state, New York. All right. And I think that that is so important because a southern Democrat will not be elected in the United States from the Civil War until 1912. And I think that's so important to know. It has to be a northern Democrat. And Sam Tilden is that guy. Jerry, I'll, I'll let you chime in with whatever you want to. Thank you for letting me. I love the, I love the transitionary period here. It's just fun to go over the, the teacher aspect, and I just I, I love it. So I've, I've set the scene the best I could. Anything you want to add on your show? That was perfect. And <laughs> that was perfect, Zach. Thank you. And one of the things I want to mention, I've actually got an episode coming up. It's an interview with Fergus Bordwick. And his recently released book, Clan War, which goes into more of the details of Reconstruction. And there is just, there is so much to discuss. Mm -hmm. But that, that was a great summation of kind of where we're getting to when we get to 1876. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the reason Tilden was chosen beyond just being a Northern Democrat, which as Zach said, was important. He was also seen as somebody who was fighting corruption in New York. He fought Mm -hmm. against Tammany Hall, which was the big political machine of the Democratic Party in New York City. You did it. You brought up Tammany Hall. So by default, I have to bring up the greatest cartoonist of the corrupt bargain era. Thomas Nast. I have to bring up Thomas Nast just ever so briefly. And I will step back from there. But if you want good cartoons to visualize the things we're talking about, just look up Thomas Nast cartoons. And after you listen, you will be able to fill in the blanks of the political cartoons. Uh, But anyway, Jerry, go ahead. Especially those Gilded Age political cartoons. I mean, they are are so powerful, so amazing. It is Nast that makes the Faust cartoon, right? Yes. Yes, and that's so. That is what we're talking about today. Uh, when you share this, share that piece of artwork, you know. And I'll be sure to share it on my side too. But editing Jerry here. For those of you who recognized our error in this attribution, don't worry. We're coming back to this about seven minutes from now as we realize the error. Stay tuned. That's it, right? It's a deal with the devil, and that's what we need to talk about, Jerry. So I'll let you. I'll let you leave. Exactly. Because that gets to the Grant administration had so much corruption in it. You know, there were there were good things that were happening in the Grant administration. And and that's one of the presidencies that I'm so excited to get to is the Grant administration. You're still pretty far away. <laughs> still still a good ways away, but we're working towards there's a whole civil war there and a whole Johnson administration. And but yeah, no, I get you. Yeah. Grant is, uh, I think, a. I, it's been a hundred plus years. I can get a little political. I think he's a good guy who got caught up in the in the the scandal of the early industrial age. Credit Mobile A. I get it. There's scandal there. Credit Mobile A is technically the first great presidential scandal. And Grant is tied up in it. 
Most people don't know Grant darn near dies in poverty. Uh, you, you know, uh, so Grant's story is something that has come to amaze me more and more because he's always been the general and he's always been the president. But Grant, the man, the human being, he's perfect representation. He's flawed, but good. I, my, opi- my opinion of Ulysses S. Grant. He wasn't a racist, which was nice uh, for the time. I know, right? <laughs> one, one of the few who you can mm-hmm. say at that point. Mm-hmm. And nobody's going to try and assassinate Ulysses S. Grant. Well, yeah, they, but still, still, whatever, but still, nobody's going to do it. Uh, and nobody's going to succeed. That's like trying to assassinate Teddy Roosevelt. It just doesn't work. Uh, and, <laughs> anyway. And that's the thing. Like going into 1876, you have all these scandals that are associated with his administration. And so on the Republican side, they're looking for somebody different. And so they pick Rutherford B. Hayes, this governor from Ohio. He's not involved with what's going on in D.C. He's kind of this outsider, Mm -hmm. goody two-shoes kind of guy. Governors make great candidates. They have executive experience and they are outside the swamp. That is That has not changed ever since. Well, actually... I would really have to dive into this and you can maybe back me up on this. Is this really what, where we start to see governors popping up? Because before this, you didn't, you saw the founding fathers and the big state names. And funny enough, this is the only presidential election to date where the candidates from the two major parties were both governors. Got both governors. Yeah. Yeah. Which both make them good candidates. Yeah. You wanted these outsiders, and especially on the Democratic side, you've got this guy who is fighting corruption in his own state. Well, he can translate this to the national level. Let's go ahead and get this guy in. And there is so much excitement around this election. This was the election that had the highest voter turnout in a U.S. presidential election to date. Mm -hmm. We are talking, we are 2024. This is 1876. 82.6% of eligible voters Mm -hmm. cast a ballot in this election. And point for non-history folk, people under the age of 21 still can't vote. Women still can't vote in most... I have to double check my dates. I don't think any woman can vote in a presidential election in this this election. But we're getting close. I think so. We're getting getting close close. to Colorado. In the 1880s, I think, is Colorado. Yeah. So... A bulk isn't, and we're talking over 8 million people voting. Yeah. But let's not ignore the right of the wall. There is a lot at stake here, too. Yeah. All right. The most radical candidates are going to be voting, as always. But this election, everybody had to know going in, this this marked the, con- the end of Reconstruction or the continuance of Reconstruction. And the fact that it was so close, it would, in fact, decide the fate of Reconstruction. Yeah. And and Reconstruction ends in 1877. Yeah. And there's a very distinct reason for that. It's the corrupt bargain. Do you want to talk about the statistics or do you want me to, Jerry? Yeah, so let me, I'll, I'll jump into the statistics. And then, Zach, if you want to kind of take us through how this election was decided. Because when you look at the popular vote, so Tilden won hands down. 4,286,000 votes versus Hayes had 4,034,000 votes. Tilden had 50.92% of the vote versus Hayes with 47.92%. So 
Tilden had the majority. And this would be the last presidential, Tilden was the last presidential candidate to win a majority of the popular vote in Chill McKinley in 1896. So decisively, he was the winner in terms of the popular vote. Now, as we've learned in recent elections, the popular vote does not decide the election. It doesn't. This was one of only five elections where the candidate who won the popular vote did not become president. The others, we talked about 1824, but we'll also have 1888, 2000, and then 2016. And one of the things to note here is that 171 of the electoral votes up for grabs were decided by a less than 5% margin of victory in the popular vote in the respective 13 states involved. And I mean, let's just talk about those numbers. We're talking under 300,000 popular votes dividing these two candidates, Tilden being the majority, 51% majority. And then he goes and loses by one electoral vote, 184 to 185 in favor of Rutherford B. Hayes. But as we have hinted in the last corrupt bargain, the last election, this was an issue. Maybe not the last one, but still. We don't have the majority that we need. We, don't, we have a 50-50 split. We, don't, we do not have the, what is it, 271 or 273 to win that it is today. You know, We don't have that winning number. So it has to go to the negotiating table. Now, now, Jerry, you can probably comment on like the intricacies of politics in today or in your seat at the table episodes. I'm sure there's a lot there. All right. But did you have anything else to add before I came in and discussed the oh, bargain? Go right ahead. So in the classroom, one of the the first off, the glories of teaching is I tell my students day one, I don't know everything about history. I'm a European monarchist, all right? I've taught American history for a decade, all right? We make mistakes. We don't know everything. First off, I'd like to correct a mistake. The great Faust cartoon of this corrupt bargain was a Joseph Kepler Puck cartoon, not a Thomas Nast. I thought it was a Thomas Nast in my mind, but I I love Puck so much as well. I have a big book of Puck cartoons uh, that a a student got me years ago uh, that that, uh, it's it's just one of my favorite cartoons, and I never really uh, went back and looked, but yeah. The, the the closeness of this election, I, I want to circle back to the point that teachable moment, it all comes down to whether or not Reconstruction is going to survive. And when it's this close, Reconstruction is not going to survive. It's too pricey. It's too expensive. All right. The days of U.S. military budget being astronomical, those aren't there yet. All right. So the idea that we're going to spend money to keep freedom alive in our own country ain't happening. All right, so the deal is struck. And and chime in whenever you want to, Jerry, because my simple teacher explanation of this to keep students engaged enough is Rutherford B. Hayes gets the golden ticket. He gets to be president of the United States of America, an America that has not been so divided since before the Civil War. (laughs) Because in return... Samuel Tilden negotiates the end of military rule in Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina, the last three areas where Reconstruction was still taking effect. And I think this is important where we bring up the map colors. Now, first off, if you look at a map for for circa 1876, it won't be red and blue. But if you look up an updated map, it will be red and blue. Red and blue maps didn't happen until after 2000 when we got over the whole communist red thing. All right. But 
if you look at it, the only southern states to vote Republican Hayes were Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. So removing those removes the last safeguard against tyranny and oppression and the denial of freedoms to, let's be clear, African Americans in the South. Every other state had gone about, I mean, you brought up the KKK, intimidation, Jim Crow laws, voter centers being 30 plus miles away from African American communities, the poll taxes, literacy tests, everything that can and will be done to disenfranchise African Americans of the South is being done in every state except for Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina because the military presence is still there. And so the negotiation, as far as I can see, is Rutherford B. Hayes walks away with the presidency. And as far as I've ever taught it, a rather like inconsequential presidency. And we begin to see the true growth of what will become the Jim Crow South. And I know Jim Crow is emerging. It won't be solidified until 1896, 20 years later. But really, we start to see it's the reestablishment of a divide, racially divided America in which the South will have the reins to drive policies in a direction. I mean, Reconstruction saw the only African-American governor of Louisiana ever, I believe. You know, so like this, the, to, to, to talk about this election and not talk about the fullness of Reconstruction is hard, but that's a showcasing moment right there. That's how big Reconstruction was. And now the South is going to collapse upon itself in terms of its racial policies. It's going to go 100% backwards. It's going to 180. The revolution, no, I'm sorry. The revolution was 180 during Reconstruction. It's going to go back to 360 and right back where we started. Uh, so, Jerry, I'll let you take it. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It and and that's and I can't wait to release the episode with Fergus Bordwick because we go into this in more detail. You know, you see vestiges of this starting in 1868 and 1872. You see this the start of this pushback, but 1876 and after 1876 is really when you get this white nationalist entwined with one of the two major political parties because the Republican Party to that point had been dependent on black voters in the South. Oh my God, the party of Lincoln will vote Republican. African Americans will vote almost unilaterally Republican until 1932 because it's like Lincoln freed the slaves. That's it. And not that it was wrong. It's just Things had dr so drastically been changing. We can't get into the post this era, but do you think, Jerry, that that's because Hayes wasn't a grant, that this was finally able to happen? Hayes wasn't a grant at all in any way, shape, or form. And, and it's hard to imagine anybody being able to be a grant at that point. To command the, the, the grant respect. He was this figure and and we can't even imagine people like Grant and Washington in terms of what a comparison. The national consciousness because at this point we we have thousands upon thousands of notable figures we have celebrities we have you know we have so many people but at that point, there were only these few figures who were known by everybody. Who And that's Ulysses S. Grant. And that's Ulysses S. Grant. And Hayes 
And and that's one of the interesting things and in, in kind of switching to our comparison and contrast of these two elections, both of the folks who end up as president. And so, you know, Hayes ended up as president because there was an electoral commission established and it was composed by bipartisan members. Of it was Congress. an act of Congress, I think. Yeah. But then also members of the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court at that point was majority Republican. And so mm-hmm. naturally they turned the votes towards Hayes. They ruled in Hayes's favor. He got one more electoral vote that he needed to win the election. Mm-hmm. But you look back at both of these figures. So Hayes in 1876, mm-hmm. you look at John Quincy Adams in 1824, and both of these folks and and we see this in the primary documents. It's not that they're necessarily guiding this. It's more mm-hmm. of their... It's the political machine. Yeah. It's the political machine. These folks are really pretty honorable folks, by and large. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... At least for their times, yeah. For their times, and their legacies are tainted by this idea of corruption. They are the Rutherford fraud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah Rutherford fraud. It's so great, so easy though. But like, <laughs> I mean, y- you know, it was harmless political scheming with the Quincy administration. I know you want to come back and compare, and that, nobody knows Sam Tilden beyond this. Like, I mean, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of Americans don't know Samuel Tilden beyond maybe recognizing the name to the corrupt bargain. If they they really know it, mostly that's going to be history majors. They're not going to. I mean, seriously, I didn't know Sam Tilden until I taught him. All right, I I knew Rutherford B. Hayes was a president, and aside from being anti labor and overly industrialist in the early 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 industrial revolution, I mean, what the the Great Railroad Strike. That's that's him, right? The, the B and O, or so I don't even know exactly which one it is. But the reality is, he traded an inconsequential presidency for an extremely consequential victory for the South, and it is it is the beginning. I I, I don't unless you've taught it or you recently have taken a survey of American history, you need to really understand the full picture here. It's going to take 90, I'm really about 88 years for civil rights to be passed in legislation. It's going to take 70 plus years for Brown v. Board. It's going to take 60 years for the military to be desegregated. It is the end of the freedom that Lincoln begot and died, gave his life for. I shouldn't say died for, but gave, lost his life for. The consequences of 1824 are silly and fun and whimsical. Ooh, Jackson's a jerk. Ooh, Henry Clay's playing around. Ooh, who cares about John Quincy Adams? Ooh, whatever. The Whigs show up, whatever. The consequences of 1876, and this is what happens when I have too much whiskey. All right. (laughs) The consequences of 1876 are it. I wouldn't have a course to teach that started around the Civil War if 1876 hadn't happened because it would have just been freedom. Freedom, not freedom, 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 freedom. But no, we decide to regress in the most revolting ways possible. I mean, we're talking an age where grandfather clauses are part of southern state governments where it's like, hey, poll taxes prevent poor people from voting. 
literacy tests prevent uneducated people from voting. Well, that's a great way to disenfranchise the majority of the recently freed, previously enslaved African-American population. But it also disenfranchises the other half of the South, uh, which is the uneducated, poor white people. So how do we get past that? Let's grandfather clause. If your granddaddy or daddy could vote in 1867, before the 15th Amendment, guaranteed voting rights to all African-American males that were over the age of 21, you're good. It's, it's such a joke. And that can only exist in a world where this corrupt bargain's happening. That, to me, the greatest comparison between these two, Jerry, and you can agree, disagree, is one doesn't really matter, and one completely creates a disgusting America to continue for 90 years. Or more, let's be honest. Yeah. Well, and, and I would say, you know, 1824, it does, there are certain consequences and it, it really comes more whenever you consider 1828 as kind of a continuation of 1824 and leading into the Jackson presidency, but the impact and especially the institutionalization of white supremacy and let's call it politicized racism. Yeah, politicized yeah. racism. I would say white supremacy, I mean, sure, but it's politicized racism. And you're right, white supremacy is probably the word because the North will get their own watered down du jour version of Jim Crow America. It makes, and I mean, we're just two white guys sitting here talking about this, but it makes the election of 1876 says, we're not really going to do anything about racism anymore. Not laws. We're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna pass national laws allowing for enslavement or anti-freedom. You have to guarantee freedom. But we are gonna do is it's like a Walmart rollback special. Here we go. We're gonna roll back everything and just completely say, who really cares about the past 26 years or whatever, 16 years? Just say, yeah, screw it. We're just going to revert to our old tendencies. We're going to have everything. I mean, look at sharecropping, Jerry. Sharecropping is pseudo-slavery. It's debt peonage. It's debt slavery. And I think that the Republicans are so hung up on money and modernization that they just don't have time nor care to think about the South. The immigrant population coming into this country between 1880 and 1920 is more so than anything we saw until 2010. They've got their own things to deal with. The industry, unless you know it already, the, the, like listeners to this podcast, unless you already know that the, the pace by which America industrializes, it's unbelievable. All right. It is unbelievable. And that's what the Republicans care about. It's like, well, wait, we're making cabillion dollars and they're passing the Jim Crow laws and it's going into the Supreme Court and it's becoming legitimized the worst Supreme Court case decision since Dred Scott, top three. And that's the fallout of this election. I, that's just me. And it it's pervasive for decades. Mm -hmm. You know, you even see beyond this period, you know, redlining things, you know, within society, culture, politics, everything. It's institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And I I agree with you, Zach. I think that that this election plays a big part in that it opens in that becoming it really opens the door for that 
And on that bright note. <laughs> <laughs> but what fun topics, Jerry? You know, I mean, what fun two corrupt bargains where we realize elections aren't in the people's hands. Yeah. But it also speaks to as citizens being aware mm -hmm. and playing a role in politics because, mm -hmm. you know, just like we were saying, you know, these in 13 states, the margin of victory was less than 5%. This could have gone Either a different way. way. And voting is important. It's and participation in politics is important. We also just have to be aware of the things that are happening outside of our control and, and these and, and you know we never know what the ramifications of a singular event are going to be yeah in this case it seemed like hayes probably wasn't thinking well i'm the president i can make change but you gave up the ability to hold the south at ransom for anything and they took advantage of that i mean i don't know they are fun elections i feel like we did we did kind of wrap up on a downer but like as a teacher how important is it to teach these two elections to a see the constitutional process in action that the safeguards are there all right in this case it didn't play out great in the first case it was a little whimsical but at least there's a plan in place to deal with the mess all right and well uh, you know Peace was established after 1876. There wasn't a war. There wasn't a second civil war. I mean, look at Andrew Johnson. Voted, saved from being voted out by one vote. I've always said 100%, my opinion. All right. The only reason Andrew Johnson wasn't voted out from the presidency is because the civil war just happened. The whole point in these people's mind is let's avoid a civil war. And Henry Clay was the great compromiser. He negotiated the compromise over the, the, the tariff, over the nullification crisis, over the 1850. Every compromise that he could negotiate, he did. I called them rubber bands. And then eventually the rubber, began, the rubber bands hold the country together, but eventually they snap apart. And that's the Civil War. You know, after the Civil War, it's like, we need to just keep the country glued together because everybody's realizing, even the South, holy crap, we can be the power in the world with our industrial output. We have everything we need to be a success. And Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, which do matter. I'm not going to deny they do matter. Those singular figures do matter. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Jerry, this was fun, though. Absolutely. Likewise. And Zach, I, like I said, I think that you were the perfect person to be able to talk about these two elections that are different. But at the same time, I think considering them in tandem we learn a good deal more about the course of presidential history and presidential election history. You can't understand one without the other. I don't think. I don't think you can fully understand why they call it the second corrupt bargain without fully understanding the, the next one. And it's not going to be the last one. And it's never going to be the last one. There will always be a corrupt bargain. But it's always important to remember, who's calling it corrupt? You know, it's the other side. And you really have to sit back and think, well, what's the fallout of these historical corrupt bargains? One was more corrupt than the other. Um, and it required far less political maneuvering. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know. Jerry, this was fun, though. I, I love the topics. Great time. I uh, Hopefully, uh, 
I love elections. They're my favorite thing to teach in the classroom. I will tell you point blank. Students find electoral maps incredibly boring. And I'm the geek in front of the room like, no, 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 no. I don't care if you find it boring. I'm going to teach. We're going to look at the map and we're going to understand what this map tells us because you got to understand how close this was. If you want to, I'd be happy to come on and discuss another election in the future. Absolutely. Well, and and as I as we close out this episode, I want to give you an opportunity because in your podcast, you do something that I'm told by listeners that I do is to take the the facts, the maps, the the things that people memorize in in history classrooms, and you bring the people back to them. I, I okay. see that in your podcast, and that's one of the reasons well, why you. you're on my regular rotation. So, Zach, would you mind telling folks where they can find sure. Drinks with Great Minds in History, mm-hmm. how they can connect with you on social media? Sure, yeah. So Facebook's easy, Drinks with Great Minds in History podcast Facebook group. Uh, there's a page, too, but the group's certainly more active. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, or I'm sorry, X and Instagram are, uh, and I know Jerry's very active on X, um, is, uh, going to be at DGMH history. And we do call it DGMH more, you know, you know commonly because it's because, you know, I'm an idiot and I chose a long named podcast. Maybe my podcast would be twice as popular if I called it like, you know, whatever history I can't, I can't say it cause it's a, another show, but you know what I mean? Like, but yeah, whatever. Either way, uh, yeah, DGMH is at DGMH History for X and uh, Instagram. And then uh, Drinks with Great Minds History on Facebook. You can find it anywhere. Uh, and, you know, you know um, I like to say, uh, in my mind, as a historian, I love Jerry's podcast because I'm like, oh, yes, deep dive. You know, like that's what I'll... Together, the two are kind of a unique complement to each other because... I'll bring up a person and Jerry will spend three episodes on this person or a full 45 minutes on this person. And I'm like, yeah, Jerry, you're an anomaly to me because I'm like, how do you find the time in that one book to really do this? (laughs) You know, like I faced that with Timothy Matlack, you know, like I did a three, four minute episode on Timothy Matlack and that's really all it allotted, you know, but like on your show, you'd find a way to hit every, you, you just do it in a beautiful way. So I'm so always happy to be on your podcast, Jerry, on your your side series to your main podcast, and um, always enjoy listening. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. I have one sip of whiskey left. Well, cheers to that, and cheers to you, Zach. And to find out more about the Presidency's Podcast, just go to the website at presidencyspodcast.com. I can also be found on Facebook, Mastodon, Post, and Blue Sky as Presidencies on the formerly known as Twitter as Presidencies89, and on Instagram and threads at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. You can also reach out via email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Cheers. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.